0: Welcome back to the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs, the entirely student-run podcast at Johns Hopkins University. I'm your host, Julia, and I'm joined today by my co-hosts Indy, Zach, Franz, and Cameron. This past year, we've released 72 episodes on diverse topics ranging from digital currency to U.S.-China relations to counterterrorism. And for our last episode of 2021, we are very excited to record a roundtable discussion on our thoughts about some of the most significant or the most exciting foreign affairs events of the year. We'll end the episode with a game of foreign affairs trivia and a short round of predictions for 2022. Feel free to play along and be sure to send any of your thoughts to hopkinspofa at gmail.com. As a quick disclaimer, the format and length of this episode makes it difficult for POFA hosts to fully explain their opinions and explore the nuances of every matter. And so as always, we hope you enjoyed this episode of the Hopkins podcast on foreign affairs. So 2021 was no doubt a very interesting year uh, filled with different events. Uh, Cam, why don't you get us started on your moment of 2021?
1: Yeah, um, interesting is a bit of an understatement. Uh, I think for me, what was most interesting was something I would say is a definitely um, a bit of a, a bright spot, which was um, I think across the world and a lot of democracies, especially ones that are pretty well established, voters reasserted their um, the integrity of their systems and their power as voters to bring in essentially a new generation of leaders. Um, a lot of elections this year, in one way or another, largely dislodged right-wing populist candidates or people who generally had a bit of authoritarian streak that emerged over the past um, five to 10 years. And uh, I think there hasn't necessarily been an election where, uh, at least in, in like I said, more established democracies, where we've seen this uh, pattern break. Uh, whether it was in Latin America or uh, in Europe, um, we saw a lot of unified opposition, uh, party lists seek to dismantle um, very uh, difficult candidates um, in very uphill elections um, amongst a very polarized electorate, whether it was in the Czech Republic or in Germany, uh, for instance, in Europe, uh, whether it was in uh, Honduras or even in Chile, which we just saw last night, um, in Latin America, um, and even in uh, certain Asian democracies, um, especially uh, with respect to Korea. It's, it's truly a global phenomenon. And I think um, it was a bit of a it, it was, it was really not just one moment. It was multiple moments throughout the year. Um, and I think, uh, that was something that was very important. I think it was something also, I think really has implications for beyond 2021. Um, and it was really interesting to see kind of the consistent political patterns across the majority, um, a pretty near universal majority of elections that have been conducted in 2021, where more progressive candidates <clears throat> or just no- normally not, you know, right-wing populist candidates have, um, have generally won elections um, with pretty significant margins. Uh, and looks like uh, some other people have some thoughts, so feel free to chime in. <laughs> well,
2: Cam, I'll, I'll let Julia chime in, in a minute here. But wondering though, do you think we're seeing the end of populism as a global trend? Or do you think this is a momentary blip in a larger arc towards populism around the world?
1: Sure. Of course. Yeah. I think um, obviously populism is not something that just ends, right? But when it comes to specifically your question, which I think is asking about the recent tide of right-wing populism that swept a lot of democracies in the 2010s, I think, yes, I think to, I think this is indicative of these right-wing populist parties sensing a bit of a ceiling, um, that their electoral performance and their ability to compete at the national level is, is highly constrained. I think they're seeing that. And I think, especially in a lot of countries where there's even a very popular or relatively, I should say, popular uh, right-wing populist leader, like for example, in the Czech Republic, um, you see this consolidation of the opposition uh, in the face of kind of the erosion of democratic norms and the undermining of democratic systems as sort of a motivating force to bring these people with varying interests together um, to sort of unseat these individuals. And I think that that has an appeal for a lot of voters, and you actually see not just a consolidation of people who already would have voted against these, you know, right wing populist leaders, but you also see new voters who have in the past voted for these leaders or who were non voters before come into the fold and actually get involved uh, in the in the electoral process. Um, and I think because this is a pattern that you don't just see in one country, you see in pretty much. pretty much every election that's been conducted in 2021, I think these are early signs of something that could potentially be changing, um, especially given the relatively poor performance of a significant proportion of these right-wing populists in Europe and Latin America, especially that um, were brought into power over the crises of the past five to 10 years.
0: I think you make a great point, Cam. I just wanted to also push back a little bit. like Even though there have been all of these events this year. Let's not forget, also, uh, for example, Prime Minister Modi's crackdown on critics in India, or mm-hmm. um, some other events like in Brazil, um, attacks on legitimacy of the election. Um, I think even Russia, for example, was in Navalny imprisoned just this year. Uh, and let's not forget about our yeah, own oh yeah. 100%. in the U.S. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, no, yeah. I'm I'm definitely a little less optimistic than you are, Cam. I think. I think, especially since all of these events are just happening this year, it's too early to tell. Sure, it's it's inspiring. It's great to see people come together, people who haven't voted before come together to unseat um, rulers who they didn't, they weren't satisfied with. But I also think when you have moments like this in politics, it can be really easy to take that to take advantage of that as well. Um, so I would really like to see. What these new newly elected people do with that? Do they really live up to their promises, or are we going to see some other kind of backsliding in the upcoming years?
1: Right, of course, and I, I'm not saying that this is necessarily something that's a given, right? I mean, I think um, these these victories are highly contingent on, you know, how, like you said, these new governments deliver, uh, these new coalitions deliver. I think um, you did mention Brazil. You did mention. Um, like these other instances where there's still you know democratic backsliding I don't dispute that at all um especially like you know in India as a notable example but you do see plenty of examples this year where these democratic systems have still provided a lot of space for civil society to maneuver i mean modi uh, did attempt to enact I believe a series of language laws or um a series of policies that uh openly limited the capacity of certain groups of people to Conduct themselves freely in Indian society that received major pushback and needed to be withdrawn, um, and so despite those types of you know actions taken by these leaders, um, they're seeing more and more that there's constraints because of a more unified, more organized opposition uh, that you re- did see kind of grow before the pandemic and was put on hold because of the pandemic, um, and I think um, I think we shouldn't necessarily discount the potential that this. New trend has globally because the challenges are still there, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they, uh, that this might be, um, this might be something we should be too hesitant about.
3: You know, Cameron, this is a very interesting conversation to me because I actually don't think that populism is on the downturn. Um, just looking at Latin America, um, all the most of the elections that we saw were between right wing populists and left wing populists throughout Latin America. In the in the in the twenty 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 in the twenty twenty one cycle, uh, we saw traditional parties collapse and failed to reach the second round, and we got stuck with super left wing and super right wing candidates. We saw it in mm-hmm. Peru between Fujimori and Castillo. We saw it in Chile with Cast, yeah. who was a former Pinochet supporter and uh, Boric who is the left wing candidate. And uh, we're gonna see it in Brazil next year as well, between Lula, be, between Lula's possible return to power and Bolsonaro. And uh, we might even see it in Colombia where the mayor of Bogota, who's a former guerrilla fighter for, <laughs> for, the, far, for yeah. one of those groups, might run for president. And uh, Colombia's president's term limited by the constitution, but at least in Latin America, it seems that populism is not going anywhere. And to me, um, left-wing populism and right-wing populism have been equally atrocious for the region. I'm not sure what's gonna happen in Europe. I know that the French elections are gonna be interesting because it doesn't look like the Republicans or the socialists are going to do well there. And it's just going to be dominant, dominated by either Macron or Lapin or Seymour, who are all various types of populist candidates. Um,
1: but I think it'll, centri- it'll cent- certainly be interesting next year. Yeah, and I'll, I'll just be real quick because I know Zach has some some comments to make, but I think um, I'm, I'm not saying that populism necessarily is going. I think um, you definitely see specifically right-wing populism see a bit of a ceiling, and that's what I was more highlighting, um, especially since if you to really look at European elections, if you have, have these more left-wing, or just these more, populist who are, these more populist candidates who are simply not right-wing, they're generally making governing coalitions with... Uh, parties of other stripes um, I mean uh, Israel is an example of sort of a very diverse go- uh, governing coalition that was put together to unseat Benjamin Netanyahu and obviously that's not left wing by any stand by any um by any uh, standing but I think um, it's important to note that uh, you're, you're seeing this more kind of unified opposition to these perceived sort of threats to the democratic systems in these countries um, and more organized efforts I think to seat them from power through, you know, democratic procedures and through the electoral process. Um, with respect to left-wing populism in Latin America, I can definitely understand uh, the concerns and, and things like that. Um, and obviously that's, that remains to be seen how they'll govern. Um, but I think populism is something that will only really be a fixture of the political system because it's really always been. And I think given the state of the world right now and the failure of these quote unquote established parties that you talked about who have fallen apart They've fallen apart because they've largely failed to deliver or create a platform that does address the pressing issues that people face. And in an era where there's you know major issues, it requires people who come up with you know just as big solutions. And it only seems to be for a lot of voters in a lot of these democracies that these populist candidates have the cojones to make it happen. Um, so for those who are belonging these established parties who are you know more central um, on the spectrum or who are more left or right of center. It's important for them to know also like, hmm, you know, why is it that this is happening? Uh but that's that's a conversation I think is now more likely to happen as a consequence of these trends that we've seen over the past year. Good Zach. Well,
2: thanks, Cam. I'm gonna jump in and quickly drop a comment and then I'll say maybe pass it off to Indy because we Yeah, good idea. Yeah, good idea. <laughs> haven't heard from her yet. But one thing I just wanna point out is for POFA listeners, um something you may be interested in if you found that conversation on populism interesting. Is Adam Tooze is an economic historian who wrote a book, um, I believe it came out in 2016, called Crashed. Um, There's a subtitle that I forget, but it's excellent. It is essentially his explanation for the rise of populism, basically the the more recent rise of populism in the 2010s. And he connects it all to the causal arrow of the 2007-2008 global financial crisis, And he says Mm -hmm. he basically just draws the line of populism directly to economic downturn and like the failures of neoliberalism and um, the kind of inequalities that created. So if anyone's interested in that conversation, definitely go read that book. It's excellent. It's really long, but totally worth it. Um, Yeah. Indy, what was the thing that you found interesting this year? Why did it matter? And what happened?
4: Yeah, thanks for passing it off, Zach. Um, just quickly, that's really interesting that you say that about that book. Um, maybe I will give. It, I don't know. I, I'm gonna, I'll say I'll give it a read. I probably will not. But I actually took a class my freshman year at Hopkins that the professor kind of linked the um, the the crisis in Syria in 2015, um, and that that a lot of like that ref, the refugee crisis from Syria, linking that to a lot of. Um, the rise of populism in Europe. So that's an interesting connection. Maybe there's some connections that he draws there in that book. Anyway, moving on from that conversation. Um, a lot of interesting points, Cam. Thank you for bringing all that up. Um, I would like to move on to a very, I guess, a very different topic, which is um, something that was every, that was the only news item for a little while, and now maybe hasn't really been as much in the news um, recently, is um, the US and Afghanistan and the withdrawal that happened this August. So I'm sure most of our listeners have some some basic background in um, U.S. and Afghanistan, but I'll just give a little brief overview, um, just as a refresher to all of us. So, you know, the U.S. <laughs> the U.S. has been in Afghanistan, you know, since the af- right after 9/11. Um, Bush, the Bush administration, going right, going right in after um, the attacks. This prolonged U.S. presence, obviously, has been going ongoing through the Bush and Obama administrations' um, surges in troops and presence during the Obama administration. And throughout the Trump administration as well, although um, President Trump did campaign on pulling out of Afghanistan, um, during his term, it seemed a little more tenuous as to whether he was going to follow through with that promise. It, it, it at first seemed like it wasn't going to happen, and he was going back in it. And then later in his term, around 2019, 2020, um, the, uh, the Trump administration started going into peace talks with um the Taliban and seeming, you know, as reaching a tangible result of the U.S. finally being out of Afghanistan. And, you know, this is a pretty complicated, obviously, it's a very complicated um, issue that has been omnipresent in American politics since, you know, the 2000s. Obviously, there's a pretty pop; it was pretty popular in the U.S. to, for presidents to push to go out of Afghanistan. Um, Obviously, for many presidents, that was not a reality. And for the Biden administration, the burden fell on them. Um, and that ended up being the responsibility of Biden. Hmm, maybe, yeah, maybe that phrasing is not, and we can talk about that. But um, <laughs> yeah, I don't know, just like the peace talks beginning the Trump administration, sort of pulling that that process pulling over into the Biden administration, and I guess Biden eventually deciding, announcing in spring of 2021 that this is fine, like the, the, the goalposts are in in sight, the US is pulling out of Afghanistan. And once that announcement was made, that was sort of solidified. Um, U.S. presence throughout spring of 2021 and summer began to pull out of Afghanistan um, pretty rapidly, even before the set date of the 20 year anniversary of 9-11. And basically the erosion of troop presence and any American presence in Afghanistan led to um, a rapid, like incredibly surprisingly and shockingly rapid overtake um, of the Taliban in Afghanistan, um, in the, in the span of a few weeks, if not a few days, it was like, in, it was insane just to see like pretty much the entire country fall to the Taliban so quickly after the, after the American withdrawal. So just looking at all of that and, you know, there was pretty, if you're watching anything about the news in August of this year, you were seeing any, like everything was about the, about Afghanistan and about, um, you know, the Taliban taking over the government and that sort of like, rapid collapse. And now the news is about, you know, this like rapid economic deterioration and just like tragedy that is happening in Afghanistan now. Um, You know, it's just pretty not, not economic, not everything is not gone (laughs) well, you know, reaching, reaching, reaching the tipping point of a crisis. And so just looking at this rapid withdrawal of the U.S. under the Biden administration, comparing that to, you know, the campaign promises of Biden to, uphold democracy throughout the world to maintain like a sort of bring America back to the world stage. What is this comparison of what has happened in Afghanistan under the Biden administration? Um, What is that comparison to his what he ran on during his campaign? Some may argue this was an inevitable um, result of pulling out of Afghanistan that the U.S. presence basically like the U.S. built a um, built a system in which the Afghan government needed them in order to function. Maybe it was inevitable that um, there was a complete collapse after the U.S. presence pulled out. Maybe not. We don't know, because that's what ended up happening. But just looking forward in 2022, after seeing this almost total economic collapse in Afghanistan, I am just one, like just looking towards the future. A lot of questions that are on my mind are, you know, what is... Obviously, what is going to be the future of diplomacy with a Taliban-led Afghanistan, not just with the U.S. but throughout the world? Um, what happens if I don't? Maybe we can argue this a little bit. Like, would you consider Afghanistan a failed state right now? What happens if it becomes a completely failed state? What does shifting U.S. strategy in the Middle East say about the future of U.S. Um, global involvement, U.S. Um, strategy throughout the world, um, and yeah, the shifting relationship between the U.S. and the Middle East. I don't know if you guys—that was just kind of a lot to put out there. Um, but I don't know if you guys have anything to add or to to refute the to, to refute that I said. Anything that you guys are thinking about?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's obviously a loaded question, right? Um, I think there's a lot there. Um, I honestly, you know, people people are giving President Biden a lot of attention on the way by which he executed the withdrawal and how he should have used one. One, uh, one like you should use the U.S. Air Force base instead of the airport, and giving them enough time and better intelligence, blah blah blah. And I think while those matter, and I think the uh parties who are responsible for overseeing that should be held accountable. I think really largely, the questions of why it happened, really extend far beyond the Biden administration, even extend far beyond his predecessor, uh, Donald Trump, um, who negotiated the deal that served as the basis for um, Biden's withdrawal. I think really the failures in Afghanistan, from an American perspective, really happened very early on. Um, I think it really happened very early on in the process after we invaded the country and dis- dislodged the Taliban from power. And instead of addressing the underlying circumstances that led to their arrival in the first place, we instead ignored them, um, as we were wont to do with the way by which we handled it. And I think the governing of the country from for the United States was influenced by too many third party interests. Um, Seeking to get their share of the pie, whether it's through, um, you know, kickbacks, contracts, um, even the, the sheer corruption of the, you know, of the apparatuses that you know the U.S. had put up, um, whether it was the military or the state, um, or even like you know local services, the way that was conducted, it just was not done in a way that was that enabled accountability, that enabled a fair shake for the for the Afghan people. And while it did help lead to improvement in living conditions, it was not. Um, Ever going to be enough? Because unfortunately, there's too many other things, you know, sucking away whatever potential um, positive outcomes could have come from the U.S.'s operation. And I think, really, when we talk about the question of is Afghanistan a failed state, I think it's really been a failed state for well before the U.S. invasion, well before the Taliban even came to power. I mean, when the Soviet Union, um, you know, meddled in Afghanistan and overthrew a democratically elected government in the 1970s. It's, it's really been in constant turmoil ever since um, with all sorts of parties, all sorts of second third, fourth party interest funding groups funneling money contributing to the instability in the country. Um, and because of its you know terrain, its geography, it's already difficult state in staying united because it's really hard to govern a mountainous country um, without proper infrastructure you then can, you're already compounding a problem that's that's gotten worse um, and I think moving forward, the real challenge is figuring out, you know, how can you have a stable and prosperous Afghanistan? But it's really only possible without it's really possible if the Afghan people get the self determination that's been denied them uh, since the nineteen seventies, and that's really the big question moving forward. You know,
3: um, Afghanistan the the United States withdrawal of Afghanistan was embarrassing to say the least. And there's about a bajillion things that you could say to criticize it. Like, Cam touched upon a lot of them. Um, but I think, like, in hindsight, the Biden administration and the, seems to have been following a pretty simple approach to it, which was to minimize American casualties mm-hmm. as much as possible. And while it led to the collapse of the Afghan government and the Taliban takeover. over... And while thirteen American Marines did die due to a bombing in the airport, um, it is unclear whether more Americans would have died if, if like we had stayed more and had over uh, and had uh, extended the, the withdrawal as well. So, you know, and and I think like the fact of the matter is that at the end of the day, the Afghanistan withdrawal the most impactful thing that it did is that it was embarrassing for the United States and it shattered President Biden's aura of normalcy that he had had until then. Yeah, that was also like impacted due to the new Delta wave that was happening at the same time. What I want to focus in in my time is about whether or not the Taliban will and should get international relief funds. I think that the most likely scenario is that the United States and the rest of the globe is going to try to leverage humanitarian aid for reforms, like they do with everywhere else, every other government that has similar issues. And um, it's going to be an inefficient deal. It's going to be problematic and rifled with um, third parties that will stifle the issues. And unfortunately, at the end of the day, the Afghan people are not going to be better off, are not going to be better off than they were before. So I am not optimistic at all about for for Afghanistan in twenty twenty two. Maybe you know in twenty twenty three. Maybe if we see like fair and free elections at some point, but so far the outlooks bleak. Go for <laughs> Julia. No, no,
0: no, it's fine. I was gonna say first that Cam had something to say, um, but I I can jump in really quick too. I think Franz. A lot of people probably share in your pessimism. I think it's true too. I think. What always happens is great powers end up leveraging aid, any kind of aid in term, in return for reforms. And what popped in my head just now was if, if the United States had wanted to leverage something for reforms, why did they leave Afghanistan? It seemed like staying in Afghanistan would have been the best leverage for making some kind of reform, um, asking for some kind of deal, intra-Afghan deal to happen before leaving. Um, of course, it's not an easy question. I don't think we have time here to debate that. But if anyone has thoughts on this, especially Cam, since I saw you had your hand, um, yeah, if you have thoughts, yeah. go ahead and then we can move sure. on.
1: Sure. Yeah, I'll be quick. Um, Yeah, I mean, alongside you both, I am definitely not optimistic, um, especially next year. Next year's going to be awful because um, I think it really, whatever, whatever trends emerge this year are going to crystallize next year. And that I don't think really benefits anyone who lives there as an average everyday citizen who's not a part of the Taliban ruling class. Right. Um, so I think that's, that's something to recognize, but, um, it, it's, a it's, it's sort of a difficult thing, uh, because I think to be frank, um, us staying any longer wouldn't have made a difference. I really don't think so. I think the underlying forces that enabled the Taliban's rise in August 2021 to be so swift and um, so fast, I, it was going to happen whether, whether or not we withdrew in August or withdrew in December. Like, I, I What really got me, and this might get a little bit more in the political, is all these people who made 20 years of bad decisions in Afghanistan and advised all these administrations that Failed and stumbled time and time again with every move in the country, or you know, not every move, but almost every move. Um, going on op eds and writing on whatever, uh, whatever organ in the political media complex, talking about how, oh, Biden should have done X, Y, or Z, and it would have somehow made some magical difference with respect to the outcome. And I don't buy that. I, I really don't buy that because I think to have changed the outcome, better decisions should have been made years ago, years ago, like even pre Donald Trump. Early, you know, it it, for it to have really truly made a difference, and I think like that doesn't just that doesn't take away the Biden administration's own responsibility and its very its mistakes. Like I've already listed them before, but I think those who have spent so many years making poor decisions or contributing to the problem in Afghanistan are once again, you know, clamoring to share their thoughts and opinions and are still in some way or shape or form influencing decisions that are made by the United States. And that's another, that's really, I think the bigger reason that contributes to my uh, negativity with uh, Afghanistan situation um, because people who have failed before and then called a return to form for their failures are going to continue to fail, whether, you know, they want to or not.
3: Yeah. I, I agree with that. I, I know that one of the legitimate concerns and criticisms that were made was how the evacuation of over 100,000 Afghans that helped the United States was handled. Mm, Yes. And how the administration did not seem prepared at all to do it in a timely fashion. Um, But what what I wanted to shift the conversation away from is um, one, aside from Afghanistan, one other issue that has touched the lives of Pretty much every American is um, the supply chain issues that we're all seeing at the moment, and I think when we're talking about like things that happened in twenty twenty one, one thing that you know, while it might be ubiquitous uh, around the world, COVID is still happening, and it has had huge effects on the on the world economy and the on world supply chain as well, and um, and and I think it's something. That it's going to continue in 2022 as as the United States tries to figure out how to fix their supply chain as mo- much as possible uh, as they try to figure out how to optimize optimize um, ports for for new arrivals and it's going to be really really interesting to see how the Biden administration along with um, the U.S. Treasury, and U.S. Department of Commerce, and the Federal Reserve attempt to. Tackle this inflation that seems to not only be impacting the United States but the whole world as a result of this global supply chain issue.
2: Yeah, Franz, we get it, man. You really want your toilet paper,
3: <laughs> dude? Yeah, I want. I, I want toilet paper. I want iPods. I want no, no, iPods, AirPods. IPods? Want... That's
0: so twenty twenty. <laughs> <laughs> I want.
3: I I want my. I, I want um, flour He'll, yeah, also wants- he also wants. Where are cars? All right. Very
2: quick side note. This has nothing to do with the supply chain. But I paid twenty four dollars for a nine inch pizza, margarita pizza from a DC <laughs> pizzeria three nights ago. Twenty four dollars for a nine inch pizza. The most. Out-
4: this
2: this is this is unacceptable. That's a supply chain issue. There was not. Franz,
0: no. Zach, I don't know if that was a supply chain issue or a poor decision making.
3: <laughs>
0: <laughs>
3: I, I think Zach is just ordering bougie pizza. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Oh, <know>, jeez, Louise. <laughs> know, you- but
0: Franz, you brought up a good point, though. What is? What are your thoughts here? What do you think can be done? What do you predict is going to happen? Is is the inflation next year unstoppable? Or,
3: well, okay, so it's it's like there's disagreements about like to what extent what factors are driving inflation? Um, there's most people believe that it's due to supply chain issues, which if it is, it's going to be very hard to fix because it's hard to build new ports of entry for new for new arrivals. It's also hard to fix the trucking problems that we've been having in between American cities and cities. sorry. Uh, the other part is that it might be possible that the, that the economy is overheating. Uh, due to stimulus, and it seems that the Federal Reserve might be changing their their opinion that. Given that Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell said that he expects to raise interests a couple of times next year, three times. Three times, uh, so,
1: which means they're pretty serious. I'd be which means they're
3: pretty they're serious about handling yeah. inflation. They're very serious. Um, so to answer your question, Julia, it seems that the Federal Reserve is going to raise interest rates to try to bring down inflation. However, we will see how effective that is because if the problem is not that the economy is overheating and that it is supply chain issues, it might not have as much of an impact as we think um, while having the detrimental impact of affecting the economy.
1: Yeah. And I think also really this is, a, as a lot of things are, a really a, a largely a byproduct of corporate behavior as well. So we can talk about supply chain issues in the context of decisions that have been made um, by a lot of these big companies by a lot of businesses over the past you know 10 15 20 years where it's a lot of you know offloading offshoring um, and ensuring that there's as, as little um, direct um, labor from that the company's providing oh, excuse me in in the in the supply chain process by you know handing it off to third parties you know getting more countries involved because you know, it's cheaper, it, it helps enhance the bottom line. And this is really, if you speak to any supply chain expert out there, they'll tell you this has been a long time coming. This was going to happen at some point. Whether it was, you know, now, I think the pandemic really brought the timeline up early with respect to how it would emerge, or you know, in the next 5, 10, 15 years, because a lot of these businesses, in order to kind of help enhance their, you know, that type of, um, th- those type of metrics for them, uh, I think made a lot of decisions that also exacerbated. The, the, you know, exacerbated the problem. And it is an infrastructure issue. Franz is right. You know, it's building more ports, but also, you know, having a 10 step process to bring something from raw materials to, you know, finished goods in, you know, highly, highly complex, very difficult to manage supply chains where it's not just Nike, for example, for shoes is getting involved. It's eight, 10, 12, 25 of their contractors. That, that in turn creates a lot of problems. And if there's an issue in one country and it's one link in the chain, that really screws up a lot of stuff. So it, it's also on these on these businesses, on these companies to really radically reassess, you know, why why have we been doing what we're doing? And that I think will also be a big impact on the supply chain crisis.
3: Oh, for sure. And actually in our podcast, the second podcast that we did this season with Edward Alden, we talked a lot about offshoring, nearshoring, French shoring, et cetera, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that there like there seems to be an agreement about with people who like know the feasibilities of policy, that jobs are not going to be coming back to the United States. That is just not something that companies can afford. They would rather automate their their production than to pay $15 an hour here in the United States. But what is possible and what the United, United States Department of State, United States International Development Finance Corporation, USAID, are doing, is they're trying to finance new ways of trying to incentivize companies to nearshore to say Mexico, to say Central America, to say Latin America. Because yes, they'll still be outside of the United States. They'll still be like, you know, an ocean or several hundred miles away from the United States. But it'll be closer than Vietnam or Thailand or China um, or the Philippines. So that's something that we talked about in that Edward Alden podcast at the beginning of the semester
1: that I think worth worth following in 2022 as well. And and just real quick, because um, I know I, I do talk a lot, <laughs> but um, I, I I did hear. I remember hearing about that. And I remember listening to this episode, and I'm really not sure. I'm hesitant to see how much I really buy that working because I do. Because automation is is cheaper. It's considerably cheaper, and it's even better to automate in the United States for all sorts of reasons. And I really think a company would rather, in many situations, and a lot of companies have already started to demonstrate this, uh, move their operations home in the U.S. But you know focus on these very high capacity, highly automated plants, highly automated facilities that don't even rely on any, you know, Kingston system going to any country. Like it'll be based in the U S but barely going to hire anyone because it's only going to require the technicians to operate the machines. Um, And I think that those things are important. Sorry. Go ahead, Indy.
4: No, this is just along the vein of what Zach was saying about book recommendations. I didn't want him to be the only one with the book rec. So if listeners (laughs) want something to read, Um, I started reading this book called, I think it's called Arriving Today. I can't remember the author, but basically it's this, it's really, it's very accessibly written. So it's like, it's like, it's, it's very much like reading like, like an article, like a news article or something, but it's like a book. Um, This guy basically like started following his mission was like to follow the supply, basically like a USB charger from like the first, like from where it was manufactured to like the arrival destination and like sort of made that his journey. But he started this in January, 2020. So like timing was insane. So he basically like captured how the how like the pandemic altered and shifted like so many aspects of the supply chain industry and like what that looks like on the ground. Um he also talks a lot about Amazon, so that's something that people are interested in. Um it's a really well-written book, super interesting and like very like on the ground looked of how like co- if you're interested in how like COVID um specifically like radically altered like what was going on with, with supply chains and sort of like um yeah, stuff getting places, super interesting. So I would recommend arriving today.
3: So we have two other um, two other major points that happened in 2021, and it's come down to Zach and Julia. So who wants to go second to last?
2: Got you, Julia. Um, Franz, we have way more than two points that were major in 2021, but two points that we are talking about, <laughs> just to point that out. Um, so the topic that I picked was the coup in Myanmar. Um, we did an episode on the coup in Myanmar back in the middle of February 2021. Um, just to kind of recap what happened in case the listeners don't remember, um, basically the first two, three days of February in 2021, the, um, the military, the Tatmadaw in Myanmar, um, they essentially arrested all of the civilian leaders um, and all the government leaders. Uh, including Aung San Suu Kyi, who was, she was technically like an informal position of power, but um, yeah, they arrested her. She was the main democratic leader in the country and had been since, uh, I believe, 2012. Um, And they staged a coup. And what was a moving towards democratic country overnight became, again, a a um, military-ruled um, junta, junta. There you go. There you can. <laughs> you so, won't. I mean, it's horrible. And so, in in the aftermath of that, there were, you know, street protests with at first millions, literally millions of people in the streets of Myanmar across the country, um, in a pretty stunning display of um, public outrage. And there was also a, there were mass strikes in basically every sector of the economy. The economy shut down because the bank workers weren't coming in, the energy workers weren't coming, in, the port workers weren't coming in. It was this major strike, and um, it was a huge deal. What happened thereafter was the military whittled away and whittled away, and they arrested the opposition leaders, uh, the democratic leaders who were previously in power. They arrested Suchi. she's sitting in jail now. Um, and they actually started to um, use violence uh, in the middle of March, I believe it was, and then it escalated from there. So over a thousand protesters, uh, peaceful protesters were killed. Um, and I guess the whole, the backstory for the actual uh, coup itself was there was an election in November where the um, Aung San Suu Kyi's Democratic Party, I believe it's called the National League for Democracy, they won the election um Pretty overwhelmingly, and the military, who basically had ruled from the 1960s to 2012, in 2012, you know, allowed for a certain aspects of democracy to be introduced to the country, but they always wanted to keep their um, their hands firmly on the levers of power. So when this election happened um, in November 2020. Um, They essentially thought that the Democratic leaders had gained too much power, and they decided to call the election fraudulent, went on for about two months until February, they finally staged the coup. I'm sure everyone saw the video of the person doing yoga and the coup cars flying into the palace behind, which was insanely surreal. So I wanted to bring it up because I think it matters for many, many reasons, but three that I think uh, really matter. First is the human toll. I think is something that can't possibly be overstated. Um, over a thousand people were killed that we know of. Tens of thousands were arrested, thrown into jail. There is a an atmosphere of fear and intimidation in the country now. Given the military's back in rule, um, there's been limitations on freedom of speech and all these things. <clears throat> a the way of life that had risen since 2012 has firmly clamped back down by the military, moving back towards what Myanmar was like in uh, the 1960s, 1970s and onwards. And it's a really scary reality for those actually on the ground. There is also economic catastrophe in the country, um, not just because of COVID, but um, because of, because of the coup. So I think that's point number one is the kind of human value that the coup has um, brought about and destroyed, which I think is terrible. The second is, I think it's important because it signifies this trend in Southeast Asia um, back towards autocracy. And there's, you know, debates about whether it ever moved towards democracy in the first place, but it's very clear now, Thailand in 2014 had a coup, Myanmar this year um, with the rise of uh, Rodrigo Duterte in the Philippines in 2016, there is this move towards autocracy in Southeast Asia. And... Um, It's shocking how many countries in Southeast Asia now are under military rule or under a one party state. Um, The really exceptions, I guess, are Indonesia and Malaysia. And that might be it. I could be missing something. I'm pretty sure that's it, actually. So that's shocking. And um, I think it matters because it shows this trend towards autocracy in Southeast Asia. Third, it matters because this was like an initial test for the Biden administration. It happened 11 days, I think, into office for the Biden administration. So pretty big deal, especially because the Biden administration has this emphasis on the Indo-Pacific, which includes Southeast Asia. And essentially the response from the Biden administration has been sanctions and diplomatic pressure. And at the end of the day, nothing has changed. The military remains in power The protesters, you know, Aung San Suu Kyi is sitting in jail, like I said. And I think this was interesting to me because it wasn't just the Biden administration that failed to do anything, it was the entire world. Like ASEAN basically did nothing. They can't really do anything. They can diplomatically isolate the junta, which they have now, which is great. You know, they were like toying with allowing the um, Min An Lang to kind of join into some of the leaders' meetings, but they stopped that more recently. But at the end of the day, it says to me, like, this is not a world anymore where bad things can be prevented by some sort of international community or the United States coming in to be the good guy, quote unquote. Like, bad things just happen now, and there is not a lot of ways that the international community can fix these problems. Another great example of this that I'm sure maybe we'll talk about later is um, is the civil war in Ethiopia, which is another horrible, terrible conflict. So. Those are my kind of three takeaways. One, human lives lost. Two, trend towards autocracy in Southeast Asia. And three, the kind of test of the Biden administration and an overall understanding that the world is a scary place and there is no international order that can kind of stop the world from being a scary place. In the words
3: of Kenneth
2: Waltz, I guess, we're in a international anarchy. What I will
3: say is... Well, I'll ask a question and then I'll phrase the question. The first is like, what could possibly have been done? Like the United States put diplomatic pressure and economic pressure on Myanmar. Other countries did the same thing. Um, I personally am a huge skeptic of the international community being able to do anything ever. I don't think it's ever being able to do anything mm-hmm. to save, to save their lives uh, without the United States uh, support there. And and the issues is that when the United States actually tries to do stuff outside of economic and, and diplomatic uh, realm, it gets criticized so much <laughs> that they don't want to do it again. So like, like what else, what was left on the table, Zach?
2: Well, nothing. I'm not saying, I wasn't criticizing the Biden administration for not doing anything. It was more an, an acknowledgement of the fact that they were not able to do anything. Which I think speaks more volumes to the kind of state of international politics that we're in, because it hasn't always been that way, right? Like think, uh, think, you know, Balkans, Balkan wars, early nineteen nineties, right? Those were resolved in part by U.S. military action, followed by diplomatic agreements. Kosovo, nineteen ninety nine, again, NATO, followed by diplomatic agreements. So. And no, I'm not saying the United States should bomb Myanmar. (laughs) No, not what I'm saying. What I am saying is that in the past, the international community has had at least some pull on some kind of corner case issues in international politics. And it seems like if there was one issue that like seemingly everyone could get behind is democracy in Myanmar because actual like, in reality, there really aren't that many opponents of this besides uh, China. China. Well, no, not even China. Like China had built strong ties with Aung San Suu Kyi since 2012. China's fine to work with the Tatmadaw, but according to Sebastian Stranger, at least, who we interviewed for the podcast back in February, they're not that buddy-buddy. And like at the end of the day, China wants um, the ability of certainty, like not unpredictability predictability. They want predictability, right? Like, So whether it's a democratic-ruled government governments, or whether it's a military-ruled government, all they want is for it to be predictable and stable, right? But in the case of the Tatmadaw ruled by essentially one man, Minan Lang, it's not predictable. They don't know what Myanmar is going to do or who they're going to trade with or whatever, and they don't like that. So like, if there was some sort of issue that maybe the international community could get behind, could have been perhaps Myanmar, but again, Russia was another corner case. Russia sells like a ridiculous amount of weapons to the Tatmadaw and all these things. But it is just Franz. I was not saying that there was like an answer to this. I think it's more just a. Also, you muted. It was more just like a acknowledgement that this is the state of the world that we're in. Like these yeah. terrible things happen, and there's not that much we can do about it. In Myanmar. yeah, I
3: wasn't. I wasn't implying that. I, what I was saying is um, that I, it seems to me that the international community does agree that what what, happ- well, what, ha- what happened was awful. I mean, you yeah, know, yeah. economic sanctions were put, diplomatic sanctions were put. We all agree that n- nothing else short of either intelligence, or, of, uh, sh- short of covert action or military action, would have done anything. Like, th- honestly, like, the only things that would have done anything to solve this is either covert action or military action. The world did everything it could outside of the, like, short of those two things that are... Um, you know, are not looked. You know, are looked down upon nowadays. Like, yeah, the world was different back then because the United States and other countries were both capable and uh, willing to use covert action and military action to protect their interests and democracy and their values. I don't think that we live in a world where those same tools can be applied. Unfortunately,
1: uh, um, I'm think I'm going to push back a little bit because I think uh, when we talk about this. This uh, world, where this was this carried more weight. I mean, you think about the, your examples; they're all in the 1990s, right? Uh, I, I would argue that it was a lot easier for the United States to push its weight around the 1990s when it was when it really had no peers on the world stage, um, and we don't fully recognize the subversive power of. The global economic system and its complicity in upholding these autocratic regimes, either directly or indirectly, either you know explicitly or covertly. You know, I mean, you, you look at Japan, for example, which is a country that has a very you know open democratic system, uh, and they have a lobbyist, an economic lobbyist, who says that the Japanese government should work with the um, work with the with with the the military junta, and you then have. Conversations between Japan and Myanmar about this. I mean, the, the, these things exist. You look at Russia and its endless flow of money that supports the military government. And I, I, I asked China as a question just to clarify; it was not a statement. Um, but like there, there are there is a, there people with concerted in, interests, economically or otherwise, that are connected to the military junta in this in, in Myanmar in this case, but in a lot of other autocratic regimes in other nations. Sometimes they live in democracy, sometimes they don't. And because of the nature of the global economic model we have right now, it makes it very easy and it creates a lot of incentives that, in my opinion, did not exist or existed far less in the 1990s. But because of you know what's happened since, there's a lot more. Um, and I think that the military government has a lot of money to make, has a lot of resources to expend, uh, and they have a lot of backers um, in many corners of the world. And that's what keeps them in power because I think if they didn't have those backers, the mass protests in February, March would have had a much greater effect than they do. It's very strange right now that people can now have an open revolt against a government and that government does not fall, <laughs> You know, even if yeah. they do have the guns. That's, and that's because they're, they're backers and we have to figure out who those backers are.
3: Yeah, like at the end of the day, it seems to me that the international community did all it it could and, you know, sure of the United States wanting to do some type of covert or military action, nothing else will get done because I can't tell you the last time a crisis was resolved just by the international community that did not revolve um, military or covert action by the United States.
2: I'll think on that point because there's no way that's correct. But let's go to Julia for now.
0: <laughs> all right. All right. So I guess I'm talking about something that can't really get untalked about if in a podcast or a roundtable where we talk about international affairs, and that's climate change. Um, <laughs> so the big thing that happened this year, right, was COP26. And I'm sure everyone has heard of it. But giving it a quick rundown, it's a major UN climate change summit that took place in Glasgow, uh, Glasgow, Glasgow. <laughs> from, October, Glasgow. <laughs> <laughs> from October to November, um, I think for like almost two weeks, not even. Um, and it was really just a coming together of governments to help set climate change targets, see if we could... Um, make change targets in sectors, localities, organizations, and they've met really every year since, I think, 1995. And so what happened was, I think the biggest thing that came out of this that was like a name was the Glasgow Climate Pact, right? So basically what that is, is that it officially requests governments to look back at their um, look back at their nationally determined contributions and Um, determine whether or not they can strengthen those before the end of 2022 um, to keep in line with the Paris Climate Agreement's temperature goal, which is 1.5 degrees. Um, And while this was the official line, there have been some other um, important benefits that came out of this, such as people or organizations officially agreeing, countries officially agreeing to offset coal, for example, or to set tougher targets or to offset methane. Um, to pay for damages that were inflicted on poor countries. Now, the debate here is that was this was this pack was the were these commitments enough? First of all, and second of all, were was was this what we expected? And so, thus, is it really a failure if we did not expect much in the first place? And I guess the third question that I myself had was: Is there anything more that could have been done? with the nature of what the UN is structured, with the nature of what the international community is, was there more that could have been done other than just official commitments to do better instead of actual officially doing better? Yeah, Indy.
4: It all comes back to the nature of the UN. What is the UN? Oh my God. Yeah, I don't know. Just like, so I was on the podcast that we did that interviewed... um, Johannes Erpelainen for um, talking about COP26, and he was great. Um, But basically we were just talking about, you know, I was asking him sort of like what, if there are global agreements about climate change, this is something that that, the COPs happen every year, right? So this is something that the countries come together every year to discuss. Paris 2015 was like a landmark agreement, but, you know, we talk like countries come together and talk about this every year. But if it's non-binding agreements that countries come together to make, what is, is, re- is rhetoric enough to push national goals forward? Because that's really where like the change comes in, like, like actually changing infrastructure to make it more green or more renewable or just like that actually combats climate change. It comes at the national level. You can't push something, you can't push actual infrastructure change at the international level. It has to be done on a country by country basis. And so is international rhetoric holding countries to these standards? Is that is that really, what is that doing? And I think it's personally, I do think it's important to have this, have a discussion at the international level, obviously, just to keep, you know, to have this conversation flowing on the, on the world stage and sort of having countries in conversation with one another. In practice, you know, COP26, I don't really, I don't really know if the agreement is going to have a tangible result on actual countries' goals and like what they're, what they're planning to do to reduce um, their carbon footprint and stuff like that, especially it's a little bit discouraging in the U S seeing the partisan divide over um, cl- like addressing climate change and sort of how that has resulted in Congress. But just, I, I my take, my takeaway from COP26 is that it is uh, you're always going to be a little disappointed at what happens at international conferences that come to a mutual <laughs> agreement, but it's important that it exists.
3: Yeah. yeah. You know, I'll, I'll add it from the United States perspective the United States has always had the same problem, where the executive branch goes out into the world and promises things that they are fully aware they cannot sell to Congress. <laughs> and that's what happening with the Paris Agreement, uh, and that's what happened in COP26. Um, so that is, uh, unfortunately, the way that American politics has always worked. And this is the latest iteration of the president. Going out into the world, trying to trying to do uh, some sort of international treaty or international guidelines, and then coming back home and inexplicably being surprised that Congress is not willing to go along with it. And yeah, it sucks for the for the world. But um, I think that my main issue with these types of conferences is that they're not ultimately grounded in political
0: reality. I share with a lot of what you just said and what Indy said. I on the other hand just want to point out that i think there is some merit to to maybe not rhetoric but to the way to language and to official positions right like i think there's a reason why it was so difficult to come to quote unquote mutual agreement and that was because it matters right if it didn't then countries would just say like okay fine we'll just agree to this and not do it i think for one it certainly helps when it comes to like coming back home and making Making laws or legislation to say that, well, this is the agreed upon position of the United States and the UN as a whole. Now, when it comes to actual action, I think what's needed more than these kinds of like I think summits are important, but I think there needs to be incentives for corporations, for example to make changes. I think it's not enough for the United States and even China, which there was some mutual agreement between the two of them, which is I think a little bit of hope, but I think that's not enough. I think we need to find some way to make corporations want to do things um, that are more efficient and better for the, for the, for the world, um, or else I think we'll always have pushback from them and we'll always have lobbying from them. And I don't think we're going to see any official change.
1: Yes, I agree hundred percent. Just like I said with the Myanmar thing, their incentives, their incentives to do things that are not to the interests of the world. Right? Um, we need to really look at you know who seeks to benefit from a fossil fuel powered world, really. And, and I think av- climate advocates, uh, parties who are in these countries negotiate these international summits need to be honest with themselves and be like, hmm, you know, who has the most to lose. And look at who has the most to lose will help us inform who could help who is most likely to you know undermine or to you know make sure that these agreements don't always come to fruition. Like you really think Russia, Saudi Arabia, you think these very hydrocarbon powered economies are going to want a very fast five to ten year transition to renewable energy no that would that would completely tank their economies it would it would drain their treasuries they, they don't have a vested interest right so people need to be honest that the when they have these con- these conferences that there are bad players in the arena and they have and, and we need to be frank about you know why they're like that because they they are looking out for themselves right I mean that's that's just the reality of it it's not necessarily because they're Bad people. I mean, yes, it's problematic, right? But it's also because they they have they have their own interests. And in the game of, you know, international politics, those interests do matter. It's for the same reason why China and India have really had a huge problem with that one word with respect to the coal transition at the very end. And they were going to tank the entire thing over it because they know that it's going to be a hell of a lot more difficult for them to do a rapid transition away from coal. It'd be very expensive for them. It would not be feasible for them. Or their economic interests, or the economic interests of you know the ruling economic classes of those countries, right? And I think that that needs to be understood when we have these conversations. It might yeah. be hell easy for the United States to engage in a green energy transition. I mean, it's been talked about a lot, but there are interests you know, in the U.S., outside the U.S., globally, that do not want to transition to green energy because they know it would ruin their own interests, and that needs to be identified and targeted. And those individuals need to be known to the world one way or another. And that's where the rhetoric matters. That's where the action matters. And we can't keep dancing around the issue.
3: And you know, it's not just China and India. It's like the entire developing world that strongly opposes fossil fuel rollbacks without subsidies. And now I want you to try to imagine that you are a US politician trying to sell to the American people that you're going to use their taxpayer money to fund a renewable energy transition in Paraguay. No offense to Paraguay, just the first country that came to my mind. It is unsellable. You cannot sell it to the American people. You will be voted out of office. And that's why if these negotiations are not grounded in political reality, in my opinion, they're not that helpful or useful because it just becomes a, like an academic conference, you know, where academics go and talk and people listen and then they go back home and, you know. Forget about it, next. Franz, you just offended every single one of them. I was friends. just going to say, we're never going to get another guest ever again.
2: Okay, wait. I want to jump in here for two reasons. One, Franz, I want to respond to your comment about lack of ability to resolve conflicts without military force. All right, I thought of one. Oh, wait. I, I,
3: I, I, before that, I wanted to like make sure to say that... like. Um, there's been cases where the United States has been able to like diplomatically resolve things, but like only really when it has mattered for U.S. interests. And um, but yeah, go ahead, yes. Zach.
2: Well, yes, that's
3: the whole point. But, but but that's the thing. But that's the thing, Zach. I don't think that the United States can resolve this diplomatically. Like it's tried. What Myanmar? It's it, it has put diplomatic pressure and economic pressure. What else? I mean, no. you even oh, said no. It yourself, I No, yeah. I agree. But yeah. the comment
2: about. The only yeah. time you can resolve a conflict is through military force or covert action, I think, is incorrect. Where the um the one Franz that Franz is not a mind... poster
1: child for the military industrial complex everyone, yes. just for audience. Well no,
2: Franz <laughs> is proud of that, but <laughs> <laughs> um the one that comes to mind is Nagorno karabakh which remember happened in twenty twenty. It was an interstate war between Armenia and Azerbaijan. They where were,
3: where Armenia got their butt kicked by Azerbaijan and Turkish and Turkish drones, and then no they were idea. forced to capitulate? No, it was mediated by Russia, no. who came I'm pretty like, sure Armenia did not ag- like. Armenia was forced to agree with that.
2: Yes, but it was
3: mediated by Russia. After they a milita- not- after the Turkey involved itself <laughs> militarily. No, you're right. No,
2: you're right. But look, there was no total victory there. Like that was a mediated conflict. At the end of the day that was a mediated conflict oh wait no that was all i wanted to say okay last but not least um we should do our little um our little trivia game because i think it will be fun for the audience too and now for the pofa trivia round
0: To wrap everything up, we're gonna have a fun little rapid fire trivia round. I will be asking questions. Uh indie Cam, Franz, and Zach are going to try their best and fail to answer them. But please play play along with us. And thank you very much to CFR. I will be using some of their trivia questions from CFR quizzes. Please check that out.
2: And no cheating. Right. I hope we don't have Cam and Franz. Yeah, Frans. we don't have
0: permission to do this. <laughs> Hopefully they don't sue us. It's fine. No, we're doing right. them. It's okay. <laughs> All right, first question. Uh-huh. Okay, We're going to ask everyone a Pakistan question. All right, I'm going to go with Zach. Today, the territory initially called East Pakistan is called...
1: Bangladesh. Bangladesh. <laughs>
0: This was Zach.
1: My
3: bad.
4: Zach's
1: <laughs> I didn't even, I didn't even,
3: right. I didn't even register. God, my my bad. Bad. The next my question will go to Indy and okay. we will only let Indy answer.
0: <laughs> okay, I'm going to ask Zach again because that didn't count. Yeah, my bad.
3: Sorry, you're sorry, sorry, sorry. Right. My mistake.
0: Most Pakistanis adhere to which religion? Islam. You got, this was, Zach. <laughs> was Zach's question. <laughs> okay okay okay, okay. which type of islam because you have to differentiate between the two and zach you can answer this uh sunni that is correct <laughs> zach, you That's great. Go, All right. baby. next question is for indy pakistan is the sixth most populous country in the world where does its population rank among the world's muslim majority countries
4: Ooh, okay, so I know Indonesia comes before it. Um, I guess, so second?
0: Correct. <laughs> Next question is for Cam. Pakistan has fought several conflicts with India over which territory?
1: Uh, Kashmir. Oh, that easy.
0: It's okay. Last or no second to last question is for Franz, who kept jumping in. Military governments have ruled Pakistan for roughly how much of its seventy-one year history?
3: Uh, like in, like practically or in reality?
0: The way that CFR has phrased, I'm sorry, I can't give you any more information. Okay, probably,
3: probably because the truth is that all seventy-one years old, all seventy-one okay, so years,
0: probably not. But, that. The, but
3: the answer, but the answer is. Um, I'm gonna guess. Can you give me like plus or minus five years?
0: Um, so the answer choices are in like like by like certain like one tenth, one quarter, almost oh. half, or more than three-quarters.
3: Oh, more than three-quarters.
0: That's incorrect. <laughs> I'm sorry. The correct answer was almost half. Um all right, the next set of questions is going to be on international organizations. First, Zach. This organization, based in Brussels, is the world's most prominent example of regional integration.
2: European Union.
0: That is correct. Indy. This relatively young international organization works to facilitate international trade.
4: The WTO.
0: That is correct. Next question is CAM. This Paris-based organization works on issues involving education, culture, and science.
1: Oh, uh, uh, damn it of course i'm the oh <laughs> i should have said that uh the international organization on education and culture and science i don't know <laughs> what is cya
0: that is almost correct actually it's the united nations educational scientific and cultural organization <laughs> <laughs>
1: Is that just UNICEF? <laughs> wow, that's ridiculous. That's
0: UNICEF. <laughs> that's <just> UNESCO. <laughs>
1: yeah. Oh UNESCO, dang. I didn't even think about that. UNESCO.
0: All right. Last one for this round would be Oh, is that everyone? No, Franz. All right. So in January 2017, President Donald Trump withdrew the United States from this twelve country trade agreement, which has not been which had been negotiated but not formally approved.
3: It is the Trans Pacific Partnership.
0: Great. Next one is on global trade. All right. So the first question, Zach. (laughs) Which of the following is not among the responsibilities of the WTO? A. Facilitating trade agreements among member countries. B. Monitoring countries' trade policies to ensure compliance with agreements. C. Specifying the amount of goods and services that countries can trade each year. Or D. Settling disputes related to trade policy. It's C. Indy. (laughs) Reports indicate that the United States has won approximately what proportion of the adjudicated complaints it has filed with the WTO in recent decades.
4: Are you kidding me? Okay, Um, I'm going to go with a very educated guess of 60%. There's
0: no 60% here, so I'm going to go with the closest one, which is 50%. That's incorrect. The answer, does anyone want to steal before I say the answer?
1: It's like is it 80%. It's like 90%. I'll give it to
0: Cam. Oh, damn. Okay. All right. Next is Franz. Which country bought the largest amount of U.S. goods and services exports in 2016?
3: There's two of them that come to mind. And one of them is a bigger economy than the other. I think it's Mexico. Oh, is it China? What is it? Oh, okay. What is it?
0: You want
4: to steal? Better say it. Canada. Canada. Yeah, Yeah. Zach, let's go. (laughs) I said it first. (laughs) (laughs) No, I
3: I I was thinking either Canada or Mexico. I'm like, okay, Mexico is a much bigger economy than Canada. You said
0: China next.
3: No, I don't.
0: I don't think Mexico is
2: a bigger economy than Canada.
3: Yeah, you're right. they just. Yeah, you're right. Wait, Mexico's smaller economy than Canada. Cam. No, 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 no.
0: Considering only goods, China was the third largest buyer of U.S. exports in 2017. But in t- 2000, it ranked what?
1: So it's third in... And now it's... And, and we're doing... What's in 2000? Oh, yeah, it was, it's third uh, in
0: 2017.
1: Was it like eighth or tenth?
0: Tenth? That is correct. It's eleventh.
1: <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> All <cow>. right. <laughs>
0: Before we move on to the next one, I will announce scores. So... I don't know why, but Franz only has one point. I think I might have made a mistake.
3: (laughs) Yes, I actually have one point. (laughs) Wait, Julia, can you like um, not tell us the next category and just like pick the hardest questions from all of them?
0: Got it. Indy comes in second with two points. Cam, third with three points. Zach, oh no, Cam, it's the other way. I'm sorry. Cam, second with three points. Zach, first with four points. Zach. Nelson Mandela won the 1993 Nobel Peace Prize for his efforts in peacefully ending the apartheid system. Who shared the prize with him?
1: No idea. Not not even gonna guess.
0: Okay. The answer. Does anyone want to steal?
1: <laughs> I'm, I'm going to take a wild guess. Um, who the uh, he was the last uh, he was the last president of South Africa um, before Mandela. I guess was like F.W. de Klerk, the guy who died this year.
0: That is correct
1: wait, no way. You're lying. Are you serious? That's correct. <laughs> no way. <laughs> yeah, you cheated. Yeah, I feel like
0: Cam cheated a little bit. He was like, I'm a guess. I'm just going to guess. <laughs>
1: no, 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 no. I was thinking about oh, That's this. a good guess. The reason why I thought about this, because I was reading his obituary, because he died recently, and I, I remember hearing about how his... Actions and president as president helped you know promote the transition. I I I just I just thought it in my head. I did not make it. I did not look it up. I'm sorry.
0: Sorry. Okay, okay, I'm ready. Um, let's see. Who would least likely to know this? Mm -hmm. Indy. Geographically, Rwanda is approximately the same size as which U.S. state?
4: Are there like? Is it
0: multiple choice? It is. I Okay, I'll, I'll give them to you because what if you say a state that's similar, right? Well, actually, yeah. no. Say the state and then if it's similar to the state that's correct, I'll give it to you.
4: Okay. I'm going to say, um, this is just me putting it out there, very wild guess, but I'm getting vibes, um, Nevada.
0: So, so the correct <laughs> answer was Massachusetts, which is... 10,000 square miles, which is about 10 times less, oh, so no, I won't, after 10. I won't giving, <laughs> have I asked Cam already? No. According to the Global Peace Index, what was the world's most peaceful country in
3: 2014? 2014? Mm,
1: 2014, 2014. Definitely the Ukraine. I was going to say <laughs> Libya. Or, I mean, I was going to say Syria. Or, or um, is it Iceland? Oh my gosh, it's correct! What? <laughs> no! What? <laughs> Okay, I'm not looking this up. I promise. Hands up, Cam.
0: You better put those <laughs> hands up.
1: up.
3: I'm, I'm not, not looking it
0: up. On the second of October, 2014, which country's prime minister declared its government to be feminist?
3: I definitely heard about this, and my answers have come down to one: Bolivia, and the other one, um, some Scandinavian country. Um, <laughs>
0: Well you have to name a Scandinavian country. You can't just say something. I know, I know, I know. I'm
3: thinking, I'm thinking, I'm thinking. Uh I'm going to say I don't know, I don't know why, but Finland is like speaking to me. I'm gonna say Finland final answer.
0: Incorrect. The answer was Sweden. <laughs>
3: <laughs> oh sorry.
2: <laughs> oh
0: wait,
2: what if we do what if we do yes no predictions, no explanations? Okay. Oh, I like that. Yeah. Like all it. right, all right. Welcome. Let me announce
0: the winner first. Okay. So <laughs> It in to last, be Cameron, in last place, this, I'm going to enjoy this. In last place is Franzo Celia with one point.
3: <laughs>
0: <Hey>.
3: <laughs> no way.
0: Second to last place is Indy with two points. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you my loyal fans. <laughs> in the first loser position is Zach with four points. And okay, uh, our winner is Cam with a whole five points. We do not know how honest this was, but it was five I points.
1: Promise, I did not.
2: Yeah, I was like I'm a good disclaimer for the audience. Francis yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm thinking, <laughs> I'm I'm thinking it died right. <laughs> literally like last month or something. That's why I remember. It's the only reason, why. the only reason why I know. Yeah. So, All so right, let so there
3: let's this wait. Let's the guys, guys. Remember, we can vote to not certify cam's win uh, wing here that's fraudulent <laughs> uh, All right,
0: all the right. right. Predictions.
2: storm the is office <laughs> <laughs> okay prediction market all right let's go all right i'll be our host here for our prediction yes market. yes
0: host us all right
2: stolen in part from van jackson's podcast van we love you <laughs> okay so Here's what's going on. This is how this game works. I'm going to give yes or no predictions, and they have to go. Four seconds. Yes or no, no explanation.
0: Okay. All right. but are you, You're going to call on us, right? Like one yeah, by yeah, one? Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. Okay.
2: All right. Ready? Julia, will Putin invade Ukraine?
0: Define invade.
2: Nope. Nope. <laughs> nope.
0: Nope. Yes
2: or no? <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. Cam, will the United States recognize the Taliban? No. Okay, solid, respectful. Indy, will we be facing the same public health situation regarding COVID nineteen at this very time next year, December twenty
4: twenty two?
2: No. Bold, bold. Okay, Franz, will the supply chain be fixed in twenty
3: twenty two? Come up with a better one. That's like that actually requires depends. <laughs> nope.
0: No nope. explanation. Nope. I had nope. to say nope. Ukraine. No. Nope.
3: Um. No, okay.
2: Julia, will the civil war in Ethiopia be resolved diplomatically or militarily in 2022?
0: Absolutely not.
2: 2022—that's a full year. It's just going to be a full-on war for full you year.
0: You said diplomatically or militarily. Zach, <laughs>
2: Zach, you're leading the witness.
0: <laughs> okay, okay, okay.
2: All right. Um, Indy, will China invade Taiwan? Oh, come on, come yeah. on. Come no. on. No. Don't leave the witness. Come on. You don't
4: pressure me. I was thinking, <laughs> okay. no.
2: <laughs> okay. okay, okay. All right. Um. Cam, will North Korea test another nuke?
1: Yeah.
2: Okay. <laughs> that was so calm. It's like, yeah. Easy, totally, easy. bro. All right, last but <laughs> not least, final question. Franz, will China drop its zero COVID strategy? Yes. All right. That's it for prediction markets. We will come back in 2022, December, to get a read on how we did.
0: That is if we come back, because if China invades Taiwan, I don't think we're coming back. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, though,
3: who I think that out of everyone in POFA, right, who could get drafted and do like really, really well... It's Cameron. Our boy Cameron here oh. would be would be the best draftee available. Are you hearing that, President Biden? We have- Why would, we ha-
2: why would Cam be a good draftee? <laughs> what? I, I think that out of all of
0: us- Why?
3: Well, because because women can't get drafted in the United States. So that leaves me, Zach, and, and Cameron. And I have more faith in Cameron than I do either me or Zach.
0: On wow. what grounds? On like Thank- intelligence grounds?
3: Franz is just right? upset that I beat him in a sprint once. <laughs> <laughs> and I think Cameron would beat us both in a sprint. Yeah, you know what? Cam, Cam's, a,
2: Cam's a fresh young man, I think. Be <laughs> All right. On, be back, on that note, Julia, close us out.
0: All right. Thanks, everyone, for joining tuning in to our 2021 POVA roundtable. We hope everyone has a happy holidays and we'll see you guys next year.
2: Thanks for tuning in.